Hello, family, and welcome. We're Bob and Penny Lord. Today, we travel back to the year 329 A.D. to bring you St. Basil the Great, mystic, archbishop, defender of the faith, doctor of the church. Saints beget saints, and there is no truer analogy than that of St. Basil the Great and his family. And as we will see later, his friends. It has been a pleasure and distinct honor to bring you the story of one of our church's greatest saints, St. Basil the Great. Saints beget saints. The saint we want to share with you came from a family of saints, literally. We begin the roll call of saints with his family, his grandmother, St. Macrina the Elder, his mother and father, St. Basil the Elder and St. Emilia, his brothers, St. Gregory of Nyssa and St. Peter of Sebaste, and his sister, St. Macrina the Younger. As we travel deeper and deeper into his life, you will discover the many gifts that made him a saint and had him declared a doctor of the church. But the most memorable and the greatest of the greatest importance to us, the mystical body of Christ, is his work to fortify our belief in the Trinity and the Incarnation as far back as the 4th century, when as a defender of the faith, he defended the church against the rampant heresies which existed at the time, especially that of Arianism. To us, a saint is born. History dictates that we travel back to the 4th century, to Caesarea, the capital of Cappadocia in Asia Minor, where Basil the Great was born in 329. St. Basil the Great was born into a very comfortable life, his family owning considerable land and possessions, but their worldly goods did not own them. As saints beget saints, his early life would be molded by the example left by his parents' virtuous and pious life. Both dry martyrs, his parents suffered and endured harsh persecution under the heartless emperor Maximus Galerius, who sentenced them to many arduous, cruel years in the unforgiving wilds of the mountains of Pontus. Tyrannical rulers of every age always go after those who would dare influence the many to lead a Christian life filled with hope and promise. St. Basil the Elder, St. Basil's father, was one of those men. As a highly reputed teacher in Cappadocia, he called all who met him to live a more godly life, not only by his words, but by his example. Preach hope. This didn't fit into the emperor's plans. Basil the elder had to be silenced. Send him away. Send his wife away. Far away. Now, nothing is by coincidence except by holy coincidence. What heritage we leave our children comes to bear fruit in generations to come. Basil the Elder married Amelia, the daughter of a martyr, and they were to know martyrdom, dry martyrdom. And what was their reward? The Lord granted them ten children to bring into the world, four of which would be honored and revered as saints. Saint, as we said before, Saint Macrina, Basil the Great, Peter of Sebastia, and Gregory of Nyssa. Three of them, Saints Peter of Sebast, Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil the Great, would be ordained bishops. As St. Basil the Great lost his father at an early age, much of his spirituality and background on the faith came from a devoted, dedicated formation by his grandmother with whom he lived on her estate. He never forgot the lessons she taught him and they indeed colored and influenced his whole life. 
Above all else, one might say through her teachings, she planted the seeds that would bloom into a passionate, unrelenting love for Mother Church and her founder, Jesus Christ. St. Basil studied in Constantinople and went on from there to study in Athens. Now, Athens was highly reputed as the greatest center of Greek learning in the world. This being so, the university in Athens attracted such great minds as St. Basil and his friends, a future saint, Gregory Nazian, and a future emperor, Julian, who would become an apostate. Each would take different roads, either toward eternity or damnation. St. Basil the Great and St. Gregory Nazianzen, who became his closest friend, joined St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Basil's brother, becoming known as the three Cappadocian doctors of the church. One student, Julian, would attack the faith and three would defend the faith. One, Julian, would attack for fame and wealth on earth and the others, Basil and the two Gregories, would defend Mother Church for reward in heaven. Was it because, as St. Gregory said, the three who became Cappadocian doctors knew only two roads, the first to church and the second to the schools? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, they would use both as blackboards of learning. Having digested all he could in Athens, St. Basil the Great returned to Caesarea, where he took up teaching rhetoric for years. Having derived much faith and equal satisfaction teaching rhetoric, he became inspired to leave it all when he visited his older sister Macrina and the monastic community of nuns she founded on one of the family's estates in Annecy. Because of her father's early demise, Macrina had been given the task of caring for four of her siblings, her three sisters and youngest brother, feeding their minds as well as their bodies. Task well done and accomplished, Macarena and her mother decided to live a contemplative life. And so they retired to a life removed from the world. What St. Basil saw before him was what looked like a little bit of heaven, sweeping grounds conducive to the contemplative life, kissing the shores of the Iris River. But more importantly, he could see his mother and sister and all her nuns being embraced by the all-consuming awe and wonder of this God who created everything. Although he was moved by the grounds and the serenity of the estate, what most touched St. Basil was the aching in his heart for something he could not define at that moment. All he knew, he no longer felt fulfilled in what he was doing. He made the decision to pursue the life of Jesus in all his poverty and humility, but first he would become baptized. Now this was unusual in those days as there was a heresy floating around promoting waiting until the moment of death before being baptized. These heretics conjectured they could sin all they want and at the last moment be washed clean with the sacrament of baptism. Of course the problem with that is that as we read in Holy Scripture, no one knows when the Lord will come like a thief in the night. St. Augustine strongly fought this heresy. St. Basil begins a new life, and with that, a new serenity. He set out to seek wisdom and understanding in the different monasteries in Egypt, Palestine, Syria, and Mesopotamia, with his eyes and heart set on the religious life. When he returned to Pontus, he settled in a remote spot, untamed and untouched by human hands. Here he was afforded the seclusion he desperately sought with the river Iris separating him from the 
the town of Anesi. In the complete peace and solitude of his new surroundings, St. Basil was able to, at last to devote himself to prayer and study of the faith he had grown to love. Although it was quiet and afforded him the privacy he desired, as you cannot keep a light under a bushel basket, so others, having seen the light, began coming to his retreat. Before you know it, he was forming a community not unlike that of his sister, with his brother Peter, one of the number of disciples who joined the company. And so the first monastery in Asia Minor was formed. From that monastery, the prescribed life and principle of monks have been passed down to monasteries in the Eastern Church, as well as to monks in the Byzantine Rite of the Catholic Church for centuries. Although influenced by his earliest study of monasteries in Egypt, and etc., St. Basil's approach was one that was more humane and life-giving. Centered on prayers and works, it was less filled with stringent Stoic strictness and more with obedience grounded in love. Although St. Basil lived a monastic life for only five years, in the history of monastic life in Christianity, St. Basil ranks significantly alongside St. Benedict for his contributions, some of which, it is said, influenced St. Benedict himself. He wrote some of the most powerful works on the monastic life at that time, writings and insights that have survived the test of time, and are practiced by monasteries till today, especially in the Greek churches. But God had something else for St. Basil to do. The scourge of Arianism was at its peak, with emperors, kings, and even princes of the church accepting and promulgating this deadly heresy. It was dangerous to oppose this heresy, for those who were faithful to the church could count on being persecuted by heretical emperors, who would fight this cancerous tumor which was invading the body of Christ, spreading poison to all its members? We're in the year 363, and we find St. Basil being persuaded to allow himself to be ordained a deacon and then priest in Caesarea. Having received the sacrament of holy orders, he soon became an invaluable soldier battling the forces which were determined to finish off Mother Church. But sadly, Satan will strike wherever he sees a weakness. The ugly head of jealousy reared its head and filled the Archbishop Eusebius with its poison, resulting in St. Basil leaving Caesarea and retiring to Pontus with the sole idea of aiding in the setting up of new monasteries and providing the implementation of principles to be followed. St. Basil was more than satisfied with what he was doing when in 365, two short years later, he was called back to Caesarea to fight Arianism. His close friend, St. Gregory Nazianzen, uh, representing the Orthodox, summoned St. Basil to help him defend the faith, the clergy, and the churches. As God had something for his sons to do, old wounds were mended, and St. Basil and Eusebius were reconciled. St. Basil remained in Caesarea and became the archbishop's assistant, but in essence really ruling the church, doing most of the work and giving his archbishop the credit. He soon became loved again. The mystical body of Christ, always his focus, during a drought which turned into a famine, he organized what we would call today soup kitchens, not only using most of his inheritance to buy food, but with an apron around his waist, waiting on tables himself, serving all who came in need. 
He founded a hospital outside the city gates for the sick who were too poor to pay. St. Gregory of Nazanyan wrote, It could well be described as a new city worthy to be recognized as one of the wonders of the world. It continued to be well known and highly acclaimed long after his death. Eusebius died in 370 and at 41 years of age against all possible objections and obstacles, St. Basil was elected to fill the post vacated by the former archbishop. On June the 14th, to the jubilance of St. Athanasius and the fury of Valens, the Arian emperor, our St. Basil was ordained Bishop of Caesarea. The joy was to be short-lived, for as Archbishop of Caesarea, he was also required to serve as Exarch of Pontus and as Metropolitan of 50 suffragan bishops. Now, as we said before, not everyone was happy about his appointment, and here we come to the crux of the problem facing St. Basil. As many, of, as, as many of these suffragan bishops had opposed his election, it would be an uphill fight to gain their support. But with his gifts of persistence, trying to reach them, and his compassion and understanding of their objections, he was eventually able to win them over, gaining their cooperation and trust. Without compromise, his banner into battle, not 12 months had passed when the Emperor Valens landed in Caesarea, his hands still bloody from the savage, unrelenting persecution of Christians in Bithynia and Galatia, he set his eyes and venom on Caesarea. With intimidation his goal, he sent an emissary to St. Basil to persuade him to submit to Valens' conditions, or at least be willing to compromise, especially on his stand on Arianism. Without compromise could have well been St. Basil's banner. In any event, <coughs> he informed Valens' representative Modestus that in no uncertain terms would he keep silent on Arianism and to add fuel to the fire, nor would he allow Arian, Arians to receive communion. Today, Mother, and Mother Church is embroiled in similar circumstances, with our holy bishops facing head-on the culture of death by refusing to allow those advocating or to participating in abortions and euthanasia to receive communion. Modestus tried every threat to dissuade St. Basil from resisting, even to the point of threatening him with the confiscation of his earthly goods, exile, torture, and death. St. Basil's words are so powerful we want to add them at this time. Well, in truth, confiscation means nothing to a man who has nothing, unless you covet these wretched rags and a few books. That is all I possess. As for exile, that means nothing to me, for I am attached to no particular place. That wherein I live is not mine. I shall feel at home in any place where I am sent. Or rather, I regard the whole earth as belonging to God, and I consider myself a stranger wherever I may be. As for torture, how will you apply it? I have not a body capable of bearing it, unless you are thinking of the first blow, for that will be the only one in your power. As for death, this will be a benefit to me, for it will take me sooner to the God for whom I live. When Modestus said no one had ever spoken to him in this way, St. Basil retorted, 
Perhaps that is because you have never had to deal with a bishop. Completely frustrated, Modestus informed Valens the only way he could get St. Basil to submit or even compromise was with force. But Valens was not willing to go down that road as St. Basil was too popular with the people. He would take the diplomatic road and have St. Basil banished from Caesarea. But a higher power than he was in charge. And every time he went to sign the decree ordering his exile, the quill in his hand split in two. After a third time, being a superstitious man and a little more than awed by the persistence and determination of St. Basil, Valens backed down and decided to go to easier marks, pointing his sights to other lands, leaving the matters of the church in Caesarea to St. Basil. The battle from within. One battle fought and won, our dear St. Basil finds himself having to do battle again, to don battle armor once again. Cappadocia was split into two civil provinces, encouraging the Bishop of Tiana to claim for himself the exalted position of metropolitan of what was now called New Cappadocia. The battle to keep the Archdiocese of Cappadocia intact was lost by St. Basil but not before creating a formidable enemy in the Bishop of Tyana. But that was not to be the only wound to be suffered by St. Basil. Unfortunately, the split of the Archdiocese of Cappadocia caused many problems for Basil. Not only would the flock he had so tenderly cared for be separated from him, but the split would result in St. Basil and his dear friend and powerful faithful advocate St. Gregory of Nazianzen becoming estranged. St. Basil saw fit to consecrate St. Gregory to the bishopric of Sassima, a less than desirable town sandwiched between the two Cappadocias. It is not known if the two ever reconciled, but popular belief is that St. Gregory of Nazianzen died in the year 374, taking the rift between the two with him. The rift that came about was singularly painful for St. Basil, as well as I am sure for St. Gregory. It was St. Gregory who originally placed Eusebius in his position as archbishop and used this influence to bring about the reconciliation between St. Basil and Eusebius with the ultimate result of Eusebius restoring his former position to St. Basil. In addition, St. Gregory wrote the highest praises of St. Basil and the work he was doing. They had been friends. St. Gregory's death was a deep blow. But that was not to be the beginning and the end of all St. Basil's sorrows. His strong advocate, Athanasius, had died in 373. What with his death and that of his dear friend St. Gregory in the year 374, St. Basil was left with an aloneness that only the Lord could fill. St. Basil was a pastor above all, never compromising his duties to his flock, even when waging the unsuccessful fight to retain leadership over the faithful in Caesarea. It is said that he referred to those to whom he preached as a sea of souls ready to be caught for Christ. His outreach to teach the truth to his flock often began in the early waking morning and continued way into the night. They were his children, and he loved them so. And that was one of the pains of the split, 
having to be separated from some of them. Crusader and defender of the church, St. Basil, as faithful father of his priests, as well as to the members of his archdiocese, carefully selected holy candidates to the priesthood, diligently separating the wheat from the chaff. He battled the practice of simony among the bishops. He carefully screened not only the activities of his priests, but of the faithful as well, with his eyes on their faithful observance of the canons. Like his Lord before him, he hated the sin, but loved the sinner, carefully calling to task those who were in the throes of sin, but always ready to reconcile with penitent sinners. He diligently defended his priests and their role in the church, but he as well laid out to them the narrow road to the Father and eternal life and the sacrament of holy orders. So stringent was he in his directives, his priests became role models for the priesthood from that day till this. Dynamic defender of the faith, he outlined the tenets of the faith and relentlessly attacked all those who taught heresies to the faithful and to the priesthood. He defended nations, battling heretics who would impose their views on the innocents. He ministered to the poor who were unaware of the impending danger from the false teaching being promulgated, visiting them with the sole purpose of preventing them from falling into error. He loved them as his very own, and this was what made the split of the archdiocese so painful to him, a wound he carried to the grave. It appeared to the world and to St. Basil himself that all his efforts to cut out the cancerous tumor of Arianism from the body of Christ had all been in vain. His years of neglect playing a toll, paying a toll on his body, he had all to do to get up and fight another day. And at times it seemed he was fighting a lone battle as he had lost his strong advocate, St. Athanasius, to the de angel of death. He now stood alone. Dear friend and mentor, it was he who stood beside St. Basil, believing in and championing the tenets of the faith in the Eastern Church. Weakened by his loss, maligned, misunderstood, and mistreated, he pleaded with Rome for help. Suspicious of his motives, he received no reply. It also did not help his cause that he had previously come out strongly against the good faith of those in Rome. But he tried. He tried so hard to make amends in the name of unity. But again, blanketed by suspicion of his motives, the Pope at the time, Pope Damascus, and the bishops of the Western Church refused to intervene and heal the fracturing which caused such disruption within the Eastern Church. Not able to undo the harm that had been done, he could not get them to rally behind him in the battle against Arianism. He admitted he had been rash. He said, for my sins, I seemed to be unsuccessful in everything. It seemed as if all was lost. His dream to squash Arianism would not be realized. But then the Lord heard his pleas and sent ammunition. On August the 9th, 378, Emperor Valens was fatally wounded in battle, and his nephew Gratian succeeded him. And with that succession, the death knell of the rise of Arianism in the East sounded, but not too soon. St. Basil was struggling with each breath when word came out of Gratian's ascent to the throne and his proclamation of the end of Arianism in his realm. It was as if the Lord was saying, now you can die in peace, precious soldier. 
job well done. Enter the house of my father. Like Moses, who saluted the promised land from afar, St. Basil saluted his promised land, only now in the arms of his father. His dream was not to be realized in his lifetime, but his dream for Mother Church would continue to live long after him. St. Basil closed his eyes January the 1st, 379. He was chronologically 49 years old, but due to his arduous hardships, the grueling years pastoring his flock and the weakening by the, most, by the monstrous disease which ravaged his body, stripping it and him of all human resources, a tired old beyond his years, defender of the faith, went to the arms of Jesus, the founder of his church, the church St. Basil so loved and fought for. If he had been quite misunderstood by some, he was doubly mourned by the multitudes who knew him and revered him as a loving, caring father and defender. Pagans, Christians, and Jews all wept at his bier. Divided, they now were one in their loss. Too soon, their champion had been taken from them. The world would not be the same without him. But he did not live and fight in vain. Seventy-two years after his death, the Council of Chalcedon extolled him as the great Basil, the minister of grace who has expounded the truth to the whole earth. Loved and hated, he touched the world, changing it where it had to be changed, standing boldly against the forces of evil and destruction which threatened the church. He will be forever known for enacting the discipline of his priests, which made them shining role models for the priests who would follow. No less severe with laity who went astray, he excommunicated all those dealing in white slavery nor were the wealthy free from his wrath. He often chastised them uh, for storing barns filled with gold in possessions while others starved around them. A light in the darkness. We felt his story had to be told. Oh, how glorious is this church of ours. What heroes fill the pages of our history. Sleep well, dear soldier of Christ. Job well done. You are no longer maligned, misunderstood, and mistreated. You are a champion for our church, for the church of the early days. You are one of the early fathers of our church. And for this, we thank our Lord Jesus for having us given us the gift of St. Basil the Great. Family, we thank you for being with us this time. And inviting us into your home. <clears throat> we ask you to continue to learn about St. Basil the Great and the early fathers of our church. We ask you to be with us as we continue sharing other stories of the super saints in the history of our church. We love you. We love you. God, God loves you. God loves you. Pray for us. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here's how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply with your iPhone or Android device, go to the app store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. 
Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel, where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN, plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.